And I want us to begin in Psalm 104. Psalm 104. Because in many ways, I want us to be Psalm 104 Christians. A Psalm 104 Christian is a Christian that looks around the world and sees God everywhere. They don't just see trees and birds and houses and street lights and they see God. And in Psalm 104, we have a psalm where the psalmist just reflects on the natural world and God in it everywhere. Just listen to this psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He sets the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. And at your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass. So that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valley. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you form to play in it. These all look to you, to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. And when you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. 
May the Lord rejoice in His works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have been. May my meditation be pleasing to Him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth. Let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. So we spent many weeks talking about God creating the world because that's so fundamental to the Christian worldview. Right? This is my Father's world is one of the central tenets of the Christian worldview, the lens through which we understand this world in which we live. In the last several weeks, we spent time talking about controversy, right? Uh, the age of the earth, evolution, and the, the tension between science and, and the Bible that we sometimes feel uh, is there. But I wanted to bring us back tonight and next Sunday night uh, to the reality that when we consider this world that God has made, our first instinct shouldn't be to think about controversy. When we think about the natural world, our first instinct should be to worship, right? Psalm 104 is the psalmist just thinking about the world, the mountains, the valleys, the the wild donkeys, the goats, the rock badgers, the sea, the Leviathan. And as he thinks of it all, he's thinking about how God provides the food, how God's provided the trees for the birds, how God provides the water for the Leviathan to play in. And he's just marveling at the wisdom of God that put all of this together. The power of God that brought it to be. The goodness of God in providing for these creatures. Don't you want to have that kind of worldview? <laughs> Don't you want to have a kind of heart where you get to rejoice all the time? I mean, this is what the psalmist says. Verse 34, he's summing it all up, right? I'm going to sing to the Lord as long as I live. I'm going to sing to the Lord while I have my being. Why? May my meditation be pleasing to him. I rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because I see him everywhere. I see Him in everything. I live in His world. I am a part of His handiwork. And so, as we talk over the next two weeks about seeing God, both in in the order that He gave this world, in math, and also in nature, in science, that's what I want us to be aiming for. Worship, a heart that, that stands in awe of God as we see Him depicted to us in the world around us. Um, not too long ago, we did a little evening study on Jonathan Edwards. You may remember that one of the points that I put in there about lessons we can learn from Jonathan Edwards was how good he was at this. That he kept a little notebook that he put together called Images of Divine Things. And as he was, remember he had this coat, and he had these little, they, they said he had a checkered coat, because as he was riding on his horse, he would see things in the world that would give him ideas, and he would see God teaching him things through birds and trees and rivers, and he would write them down on his note, and then he would pin it to his jacket. And they say when he would come home and take off his jacket, his jacket was often just covered with these, kind of like our post-it notes, right? Notes all over his, his jacket with these things that he had written down. So, Jonathan Edwards wrote about a rose, right? And he said, when you look at a rose, what do you see? You see this beautiful flower on top, but it's growing out of all of these thorns. And he said, isn't that a picture of God telling us that the way to beauty, the way to glory, is the way that Christ went through hardship and suffering and difficulty, but it brings glory in the end. 
Uh, He talked about looking at how a spider builds its web and then how a fly gets trapped in the web. And he said, isn't that a picture of how Satan lays snares for God's people and how we must be on the lookout? You ever been walking through the woods and walk right into one of those things and it grabs you in the face, right? I I did that the other day when um, I took the boys up to my grandparents and we were fishing around the pond and I had to go through some trees and I walked right into one of those things and I probably scream like a girl. I mean, it's, it's freaky, you know, it surprises you. And it tells you, be alert, be alert. Well, so we should be alert for, for the snares that Satan lays before us. So that's what we're aiming for, hearts and minds that see the glory of God everywhere. And tonight, I want to focus specifically on math. Um, some of what I'm going to do, I did about a year ago in a Sunday school class. So a few of you have seen some of this before. Most of you haven't. So I hope it will be, will be helpful to you. Um, the ancient Greeks were on a quest to discover that most fundamental element that they believe makes up and unifies all things. Uh, it was their contention, and actually they were on to something here. They had good reason for this. They were on this contention that there must be something that unifies the whole world. So that whether it's rivers or trees or lakes or rhinoceroses or whatever it is, right, uh, that there must be some fundamental element that makes up all of these things. And so there were all these philosophers debating this. So one of the earliest Greek philosophers, Thales of Miletus, suggested that it was water, right? Water is the fundamental element that makes up all things. Not too far off, like we're largely water, aren't we? Uh, But not everything is. A successor of his, uh, Anaximenes, argued, no, uh, the fundamental element that makes up all things is is air, or really an an air-like ethereal substance, a kind of spirit, and that that's what unifies and makes up all things, Still not too far off. I mean, don't we believe that the Holy Spirit is involved in everything, right? There's something to that. Heraclitus in the 5th century B.C. said, no, it's, it's fire, particularly what he called the spark, the spark of life, that that spark is in all things. But it was a mathematician named Pythagoras who I think came closer to the truth. And you probably know Pythagoras, if you remember from school, from his theorem, right? Um, We think triangles when we think of Pythagoras, at least I do. But Pythagoras was a lover of music. And he discovered that strings of varied lengths, when plucked together, produce different harmonies, right? So you get different strings of different lengths, and you pluck them at the same time. And sometimes the sound of the two strings plucked together was concordant. It sounded pretty. And sometimes two strings plucked at the same time was discordant. It was not very pretty. And he learned that a string of the same width and the same tension, but half the size of another, would produce the same tone an octave higher or lower. He realized the principle that ratios create harmony. Well, everywhere Pythagoras looked in the natural world, he saw harmony right? He saw harmonies on the earth. He saw harmonies in heaven above. He, he began to realize that, I mean, why is it that we have the harmony of the, the symmetry, right, of, of, of an ear on each side and the same thing, right? The, the idea was he saw mathematical principles lying behind everything, and he said, I've got the answer. What is the fundament, fundamental element of which all things are made and which hold thing, all things together? 
He says it's number. Number is the unifying element. Now, after this discovery, it became obvious to him that there must be a connection between numbers, mathematical principles, and the divine. And so some of Pythagoras' followers actually began to worship the first four numbers as gods. Imagine that? They worshipped the numbers one, two, three, and four. And Pythagoras was uh, worshipped as a saint of this religion, a religion called Pythagoreanism. Okay? Plato, while maybe not involved in the religion, uh, was very heavily influenced by Pythagoreanism. And he really had a high view of this math-oriented religion. Well, what I want to argue is that Pythagoras was onto something, but because he didn't have the light of Scripture, he didn't quite get it right. Math is not to be worshipped. But math is the language of God. Math is an element that gives our universe its shapes and its contours and holds it together. And when we see math rightly, it causes us to look to God in wonder and to worship. And so um, what's been really helpful to me here is a book by Vern Poitras. Uh, Vern Poitras is a uh, professor of New Testament studies at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Uh, He's also got his doctorate degree in mathematics from Harvard. So he's a New Testament teacher who also has his PhD in math from Harvard. And so he wrote a little book called Redeeming Mathematics where he tries to help us see the glory of God in math. Now, our conviction should be that everywhere a Christian looks, he or she should see God. Because we believe Romans 11.36, right? Remember Romans 11.36? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So it doesn't matter what we're talking about in the world. Whether we're talking about black holes, whether we're talking about a history book, whether we're talking about a hair off your head, we should always be able... Christians have something to say about every subject in the world. Do you know that? We live in a world where where people want to be so specialized, where they want to say, well, I'm not an expert on that area, so I can't address that. Well, Christians, even if you know nothing about a subject, can always relate to it in at least three ways. Because we know three things about everything. We know where it came from, we know how it exists, and we know its purpose. Whatever it is, right? We know where it came from. It came from God. We know how it exists right now. It's being upheld by the power of God. And we know why it exists. It exists for God. Because all things are from him, through him, and for him. Right? So when it comes to math, it's from God. What upholds these mathematical principles so they're the same tomorrow as they are today? That's God. And why do these principles exist? They exist for God. And so that's um, where we're going to start. So I want to start with this equation. 2 plus 2 equals 4. Some of you may be thinking it's been a long time since I was in math class. Um, So let's not get complicated. That's not too complicated, right? We can handle 2 plus 2 equals 4. I'm not a guy that knows 
big, heavy math stuff. So this is my level, okay? Two plus two equals four. Most people are either more math-oriented or English literature-oriented, right? There are a few that write in the middle, but most people either lean math or lean English. So how many of you in here would say, I am more on the math side of things? Good. How many of you would say I'm more on the English literature side of things? Yeah, it's about, about half and half. And that's the way it normally, it normally works out. So admittedly, I am more on the English literature side of things. So if you're struggling with math, I'm, I'm right there with you. Uh, but here are some things that we can say about 2 plus 2 equals 4. First of all, uh, we can say that it's true. Does everybody agree with that? That's a true statement. Uh, it was true yesterday. It's true today. It will be true tomorrow. In fact, if we waited a thousand years and we did two plus two equals four, would it still be true? If we went a thousand years in the past, if we sat down with Abraham and ate two apples and two apples, would we have eaten four apples? This means that this equation is what we would call eternal. There is never a time in which it does not exist and isn't true. Two plus two equals four is eternal. Now, two plus two equals four is true in this room, but let's say we traveled to New Jersey. Is it still true there? What about in Indonesia? What about on the space station? Is it still true? Yeah, the far reaches of the galaxy. If we go to the very edge of the universe and you have two planets and you have two planets, you still have four planets. This equation is omnipresent. It's true everywhere. It exists everywhere. Now, 2 plus 2 is above and beyond its particular application. So let's pretend there were no planets. Let's pretend that there were no apples or pencils or rhinoceroses. But let's pretend there's nothing to apply it to, that nothing exists. Even if there was nothing to say, there's two of this. Nevertheless, 2 plus 2 equals 4 would still be true outside of time, outside of space. It's a principle that would hold true. We call that transcendence. It is a transcendent principle. But while 2 plus 2 equals 4 is a transcendent truth, it's also true in a thousand daily expressions in our lives. Two fingers plus two fingers equals four fingers. Two tires plus two tires equals four tires. This timeless transcendent truth is right here with us every day in a hundred different ways. We call that imminence. Everybody say imminence. Imminence. Isn't that fun to say? Imminence. Imminence. Can two plus two equals four ever not be true? Can it change? The answer, of course, is no, it can't. It is unchangeable. Or does anybody know what we call that in the Bible? What's the, what's the word for unchangeable? Immutable. Everybody say immutable. 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 That's the word that, uh, that Christians in the past have used, right? A, a mutant, or last week in talking about evolution, we talked about mutation, right? That's a change. God is immutable. He, he cannot mutate. He cannot change. 2 plus 2 equals 4 is a truth that we see expressions of all the time, but the truth itself is not something that you can see. 
Um, we, we give it symbols. These are symbols that we've created to express the principle. But the principle itself exp- exists in the realm of ideas. At the end of the day, 2 plus 2 equals 4 is an ideational truth. It's an idea, or it is what we would call invisible. It's a truth that is an idea, so it's invisible. As we've already observed, 2 plus 2 equals 4 is a truth that you can count on. It will be true for you tomorrow. And aren't you glad? How would you feel if tomorrow you had two fingers and two fingers and equaled three? Right? You wouldn't like that very much. So we're glad that this equation is trustworthy, or we would say this equation is faithful. This equation is faithful. Two plus two equals four is not a truth that was invented by any mathematician or any scientist. 2 plus 2 equals 4 is a truth that was discovered, or better yet, it was probably basically known by the first humans, by Adam and Eve. When Adam met Eve, I think they instinctively knew 1, 1, 2, right? So this, this idea is basic to the human race. And it didn't matter what Adam and Eve pointed to, the principles of math held true. Even today, we can name a gazillion different things in this world. Choose any object you want. Take two of them and two of them and put them together, and you've still got four. In other words, nothing can, can get away from the sovereignty of two plus two equals four. Mathematical principles have dominion over our world, and nothing can get out from under them. There's a very real sense in which two plus two equals four is sovereign. It rains. Clearly, 2 plus 2 equals 4 is a truth that we as human beings can know and can understand. So we would say it is knowable. And 2 plus 2 equals 4 also has depths and mysteries to it that would boggle our minds. Now you think, really? What's so mysterious or boggling about 2 plus 2 equals 4? But let's get into discussions about how two is both a unity and a diversity and how the unity relates to the diversity and how it is true that that unity with its relationship to the diversity holds true in all times and all places. And very quickly you realize that what you thought was very simple math is actually a very deep, um, at the end of the day, incomprehensible truth. There is a depth to even the most basic math. And so we would say it is incomprehensible. We could not live in a world where 2 plus 2 didn't equal 4. It's the consistency of mathematical principles that make creation and the plan of God in your life and my life even possible. Moreover, this truth More and more, this truth never lies, right? This truth will never deceive us. Two plus two equals four will never lie to us. And in that sense, two plus two equals four is good. It is a pure truth. It is an honest truth. There's no deceit. There's no darkness in this truth. 
2 plus 2 equals 4 is also a truth that brings harmony into the world. It brings symmetry into the world. It brings symmetry into our lives. There's, there's order and agreement and coherence into our world because of this equation. And so we can say that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is beautiful. And I hope you see that. Now, what happens when people try to live as if 2 plus 2 doesn't equal 4? For example, what happens when a family tries to live with an unbalanced budget in their homes, right? We're going to really try hard to make 2 plus 2 equals 5 this month, right? You ever been there trying to make 2 plus 2 equal 5 that month, right? Well, there are consequences to that. There is debt. The truth is our lives reap negative consequences when we try to break the laws of math. And in that sense, 2 plus 2 equals 4 is righteous. It is just. It rewards those who hold to it. It brings toughness, discipline, and hardship to those who don't. All right, so let's just stop. What do we make of this list? What do you see when you see this list? God, right? The attributes of God. That what we're using here to describe the attributes of math is actually the same thing as describing God. And so this is why I say I don't think Pythagoras was way off base when he said that maybe the central thing that holds this world together is math. That's, that's very close very close to God. But math is not God. Math, I would suggest, is the language of God. It is the speech by which he created the world and by which he holds it together. So let me show you a couple of passages. So Psalm 33. Turn to Psalm 33. And I want to show you where I'm getting this connection between God's speech and math. So Psalm 33 and verse 6. Verse 6. Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. Now the heavens means outer space. When it says by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, He's talking about planets and solar systems and galaxies and nebula and all of those kinds of things. Well, how do those things hold together? Is there not math at work in all of those things? So when God created the world, when he created the heavens by the word of his mouth, part of what he spoke was math. Or look at verse 9. Verse 9. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. So this world, with all of the mathematical principles that cause it to have order and coherence, where did they come from? He spoke, and these mathematical principles came to be. He commanded, and these mathematical laws stood firm. Let me read you one more. You can turn there if you want. Hebrews 1, verse 3 says this. Hebrews 1, verse 3, speaking of Jesus Christ, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature 
and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So when the Hebrew writer speaks of Jesus Christ, he says Jesus is the one that upholds this world along with all of the principles that hold it together. Jesus upholds it by the word of his power. And so I take that to mean that when we're looking at math, we're looking at something that has been spoken by God into existence and that it is upheld as the very language of God. Augustine said it this way, Numbers are the universal language offered by God to humans as confirmation of the truth. Meaning, when humans look at math, they are to see confirmation of him. Now that is not the way I looked at math as a kid. I looked at it as torture. (laughs) If anything, it was truth that there is a place called hell. (laughs) I hated math. It was just not me, right? And so uh, this is new to me, but I think it's wonderful. I think it's glorious. So even in general revelation, apart from the Bible, God has spoken. This is the truest word. This is the greatest word. The Bible is the greatest word of God outside of Christ himself as the word of God. But there's more to the word of God than just Christ and just this, the Bible. There is God speaks and the order of mathematics is brought to this world. Math, in a very real sense, is divine language. When you're studying math, When you're learning about mathematical principles, you're studying the very language of God. In the same way that we would call the Bible divine because it comes from the the mouth of God, so there's a real sense in which math is divine. Uh, Math, while not something that we should worship the way the Pythagoreans did, it is a word of God. It is an expression of God. It is something transcendent and even greater than the world in which we live. Now, this gets a little bit trickier, a little bit deeper, so keep your, keep your brains on. I want to add one more word to here, and it may seem a little different at first. But I want to argue, and Poitras argues, that we could also say that this equation is Trinitarian. Trinitarian. That just as God is three in one, Math reflects not just God, but the Trinitarian nature of God. So think about the Trinity. You have God as sort of the original, right? Here's God the original. And then here is Jesus, who is the image of God, right? God expressed. God on display is Jesus Christ. Jesus walked on this earth as a man. And John says that when you saw Jesus, you saw God. So there's God the Father, the original, but he's invisible. And then there's Jesus God, the image of God. He's imaged, you can see him. And then there's the Spirit. And according to Jonathan Edwards and many others, the Spirit is the great unity between the Father and the Son, the great love, the great oneness, the great uh, unity between the two. And what we would suggest is that when you look at math, there's the idea, 2 plus 2 equals 4, but then there's the actual imaging of 2 plus 2 equals 4 in that 2 chairs plus 2 chairs equals 4 chairs. So there's the original, there's the imaging, the incarnation of 2 plus 2 equals 4, right? And then there is the unity 
between those two ideas. And so Poitras argues that in a very real way, math operates out of the idea of a trinity. Now, what's one implication of all this? Well, consider how strange it is when people whose very lives depend every moment on these divine mathematical principles curse God or deny God. Every moment we are living in a world in which God's language is holding us up. Frankly, if the rules of math fell apart tomorrow, you would fall apart tomorrow, right? Isn't that how it works? Right? We would, fall, we would become, we would cease to be, it would be chaos, it would be, we can't even fathom what it would be if the rules of math suddenly didn't exist tomorrow. We are being upheld by the very language of God. How strange it is then that people being upheld by the very language of God curse God. Cornelius Van Til tells the story, he was getting on a train one day, and he said he was sitting there watching, and a little girl was sitting on the lap of her father, and she slapped her father. And he said, I just thought about the fact that she wouldn't have even been able to slap him in the face like she did. She wouldn't have even been able to slap him in the face if she hadn't been sitting on his knees. That he was supporting her even as she was hurting him. And he said, that's exactly how it is for people who try and curse God and rebel against God in this world. He's holding them up every moment. He's the one who's causing them to exist and live even as they curse God and rebel against God. Another idea. All of math depends on sets, right? S-E-T-S, sets. So um, Johnny has a fruit basket, okay? His fruit basket has four apples and six oranges. How much fruit does Johnny have, right? Well, what have we done there? We've made a set. We've actually made two sets, right? There's a set of fruit, But then we start making categories. There's four apples. There's six oranges, right? What makes a set a set? Well, first, each, in order to have a set, each element in that set must be fixed. So you can't have an apple becoming an orange, becoming an apple, becoming an orange. That would never work, right? That that would be weird, and that would just never work, okay? There has to be clear criteria for how it's separated. So we're going to separate by the kind of fruit it is, apples and oranges. And there has to be a relationship of belonging, a kind of membership to each set. So this one apple belongs to the set of four apples. Folks, we do this every single day instinctively, don't we? I mean, we just immediately categorize things. Put them in categories. Make distinctions. We separate. As I look at you right now, my mind just instinctively categorizes men, women, older, younger, right? We do this. We, we separate by colors. We separate by type. We separate by kind. There's something instinctive in the human heart that just makes sets all the time. And it's what all of math is based out on that we do. Is what is two plus two equals four? It's two of something plus two of something equals four. We make sets. Well, whose image were we created in? Thank you. We were created in the image of God. Look at Genesis 1 again. I know we keep going back there, but what is the most fundamental chapter in the Bible? It's Genesis 1. So much truth in Genesis 1. And just notice what God does when he creates the world. So 
let's just begin in verse 4, right? Verse 4, Genesis 1, verse 4. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, right? He's creating sets. He's making distinctions. He's making categories. God called the light day. The darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Oh, but he doesn't stop. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. You've even got two sets of waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. There was evening and there was morning the second day. And he keeps on making sets. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. Let the dry land appear. Do you see how God is just making distinctions, making categories, making sets, putting one thing over here, putting one thing over there. It all started out as one thing. Darkness and void, right? Void and empty. And he takes all of that by the power of his word and he creates sets. All the way down to verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. The very lives in which we live are ordered by categories, set times that God has created. Every time we make distinctions, every time we gather some things together by likeness, dividing out something else, we are imitating the very actions of God himself in the way he brought together this universe. God created the universe in Genesis 1-1, but after that he took six days to give it order, to create sets, to put in categories. And then he said to man, you keep going. You give names to the animals. You keep going with creativity and technology and cultivating the fields and creating music and working with metal. And you, man, keep doing what I did. You have, as my image bearers, go into the world and give it order and cultivate it. So math... It's part of what makes us human. It's part of the image of God within us. And it's something that reflects his glory. Are you bored? You're not bored, are you? Are you all with me? Okay. Is that a yes, we're bored? (laughs) I hope not. (laughs) All right. Um, We're running out of time, so I'm going to try and fly through this last part. Um, March Madness. We just had March Madness, right? Uh, so everybody tries to fill out their perfect bracket, win a million dollars. You know what I'm talking about, right? You fill out your perfect bracket. I know Moe's. Welcome to Moe's. They try and give you a million dollars if you win. So what are your chances of winning a million dollars, right? So big numbers. So you know if you, had, if you had four teams playing in March Madness, let's just pretend it was just four teams, one, two, three, four, and this is Team A, this is Team B, Team C, Team D, these two would play each other and result in a winner. These two would play each other and result in a winner. And then these two would play each other and result in a winner. So you'd have three games, and there would be two possibilities for each game, right? Two possible outcomes for each game. So if you wanted to figure out your odds of a perfect bracket, okay, if there were only four teams playing, it would be two to the third power, which equals eight. So you'd have a one in eight chance of filling out a perfect bracket. Now, what about when you have 64 teams playing? 
I know technically it's 68, but the first four play and we die. I know how it works, okay? But they, it's, we do 64 team brackets, right? So the way you would figure out your odds of getting a perfect bracket, assuming 50-50 chance of each team winning, all right, is you would do two to the 63rd power because there's 63 games and two possibilities for each one. Now, here is your number. I better put this up here with me. Your chances of getting a perfect bracket are... Wait, one in that. How good are you feeling about that perfect bracket? Now, in case you're wondering what in the world number this is, this is nine quintillion, 223 Okay. Um, if we had time, we could get in groups and we could do this, and we could say, given seven billion people on planet Earth, how could we do this? If all 7 billion people on planet Earth filled out 1.2 billion different brackets each, one would win. <laughs> okay? This is why Joe's Plumbing Shop can offer a million dollars for a perfect bracket. You're not going to get a perfect bracket. Big number. But that's not that big. You guys heard of a Google. Everybody knows Google, right? All right, Google. But actually, the true Google is spelled G-O-O-G-O-L, okay? And a true Google is one, number one, followed by a hundred zeros. And I'm not going to write that out, okay? So the number one followed by a hundred zeros is a Google. It's a very large number. Have you ever heard of a Googleplex? Everybody say Googleplex. Okay, so a Googleplex is where you take the number 10 and you multiply it by itself a Google number of times. Does that make sense? So you multiply 10 times, 10 times, 10 times, 10, a Google, one with 100 zeros, all right, amount of times. Now, because of the way these things work, uh, says one mathematician, a Googleplex has so many zeros that there is not enough space in the observable universe just to write the number down, even if you could write a zero on every single atom. There are not enough atoms in the universe to write down all the zeros in a Googleplex. Imagine that number. That is not the largest number we know of. The largest number we know of is called Graham's number. Everybody say Graham's number. It's not named after Billy Graham. It's named after a Graham fellow that discovered it. What it is, uh, what the number 10 is to a Googleplex, so what the number 10, 10 is to that number where you can't even write all the zeros and all the atoms in the universe, a Googleplex is to Graham's number. We are talking about an astronomically mind-blowing big number. It's far larger. If every person on planet Earth spent their entire lives trying to help write this number, we would not get it written down, just writing the digits. That's how big of a number we're talking about. We don't know all the digits to Graham's number. We do know it ends in a seven. 
right? Don't ask me how they know that, but they, they have the formulas. They, they know it ends in a seven. These are huge numbers, right? Now, as big as Graham's number is, here's a number line that goes from one to infinity. Where's a Google? Is it closer to one or infinity? Here's a Google. Here's a Googleplex. Here's Graham's number, <laughs> right? Compared to infinity. What does it mean when we say God is eternal? That he has always existed. What does it mean when we say that we have eternal souls that will exist for infinite years? Is that not mind-blowing? We treat this life as if this is all there is. Compared to this, your life, I mean, it's, I can't even put a speck on there. You shouldn't even be able to see it, right? Compared to the eternity that is ahead for you. This is why Paul can say, right, that the glory ahead for you is not even worth comparing with the little sufferings you're having today. Because they're just part of the speck. And yet God will be with you tomorrow. Isn't that amazing? He's even in the speck. That's right. That's right. Skipping ahead, skipping ahead. All right, some conclusions, some conclusions. Um, one of the most obvious and wonderful conclusions of math is that God does value both unity and diversity. Math is built on the principle of unity and diversity, that you can have a unity of three different things. So unity and diversity. God himself is unity, diversity, um, we should not be surprised that the Bible calls local churches to be a wonderful display of unity and diversity. People who are maybe very different from each other, but they're brought together as one because of their common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their common hope of heaven and their common salvation. There is a unity and diversity in the church of Christ that we see taught even in math because it reflects the God who is both unity and diversity. Another conclusion, how can anyone ever spend any time doing any math and still argue that our world is a result of chance? Do mathematical principles seem to be the result of chaos? In fact, don't even scientists, while they're trying to prove that God isn't real, use the order that he has given to this world to try and prove their points? Every day, every mathematician, every scientist, every university professor, they are operating using the order that God gave, and if you took God out of the picture so that there is no order, they'd have no ability to even argue. There's no sense to a world in which there is no God. Math also presents an ultimate obstacle to the relativistic postmodernism of our age. Remember, this is the view that says, you can believe what you want to believe. You can have your truth, and I'll have my truth. Well, does that work in the world of math? Despite what Common Core might try and say, right? Two plus two always equals four. No matter who you are, no matter what you want to believe, no matter what your truth might be. And you can try and live as if two plus two equals five, but there will be consequences because math holds dominion because ultimately God holds dominion. 
last conclusion. When we look at math, it should be just another reminder that this is our Father's world. And His fingerprints are all over it. And that should comfort us as believers. Think about that. You can be suffering and hurting and and feeling depressed because you just don't understand what's going on and why would God let this happen to you and you can feel like watching this election and everything else and everything's just crazy. You can run to the Bible and find comfort. You can also run to your math book and read one plus one equals two and remember, oh yeah, there is a God who gave order to this world and he's in control.